0: Good morning, everyone. This is Laura Huey and you're joining me for Sociology 9021, which of course is the graduate course in qualitative research methods. And I should preface this by saying um, good morning, good afternoon or good evening or good night, uh, depending on what time you're listening to this at. You might hear some gentle sounds of chomping in the background. I'm at home in quarantine, of course, day, I don't know, 103, I think. And the chomping is the sounds of my co-hosts enjoying their bribery, uh, Chewbacca, my Morkey, and of course, Lucy, uh, my Cockapoo. So the gnar, nah, nah, is 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 them and it's not me. Okay, let's get started. This first discussion is to kind of get you thinking a little bit differently perhaps than what you might have thought before you clicked uh, play about qualitative research. I want to try to expand your mind a little bit in terms of what qualitative can do. And I I will preface this by saying that I am a qualitative researcher who believes very strongly in high quality, rigorous, valid qualitative research, and that it offers a lot to our understanding of not just the social world, but how to influence, potentially, how to shape policy and practice that can be beneficial for for community, society, and so on. I think, and I'm gonna try to to emphasize that through this course. Now that said, I'm not like a law, I'm I'm actually, I like to think of myself as a methodologist, meaning that I I love methods. And yes, I focus on qualitative, but I also love quantitative. I love mixed methods approaches. I like innovation. I like, different ways of, of using methodological tools, whether it's mapping or, or some complex statistical analysis or really good in-depth qualitative interviews, I'm gonna argue that the best method is the method that most helps you to answer the research question or you know satisfy the hypothesis or answer the hypothesis that you've stated or however you wanna frame that that there is no, and I'll talk a little bit about gold standards and then I'll dispel some of the mythology around that. But essentially what I want to, like I said, I want to stress that it's not an either or. It ideally is a both because I actually, some of the best, most comprehensive research has been a combination of the two. So if you came in bent one way more than the other in terms of your aptitude or your liking, I, I hope to like, you know, kind of get you to be a little bit more fluid. All right, let's get cracking here. As soon as I figure out how to work my. <laughs> there we go. So, basic question What makes a question qualitative and not quantitative? And I think some of the most basic ways to think about it are, of course, counting. So, if you're going to count something, it's quantitative. If you are hypothesis testing in quantitative, you know, you're going to frame you're going to phrase a statement that's either answered yes or no. In qualitative, our qu- research questions, we don't do hypothesis testing. Our research questions tend are not yes or no. They tend to be open-ended so that there's a variety of different responses that you can you can supply to your research questions. Quantitative, it's been argued draws on large numbers of respondents, while qualitative does not. Um, I've heard that over and over again, but I've seen, and I myself have done qualitative research where we have conducted over 200 interviews. Um, I can tell you my PhD was 105, I believe, and um, some of my other research projects have been in the neighborhood of 100 interviews. So, you know, for qualitative, that's a pretty large uh, sample size the other thing too is and when we think about quality we think of like interviewing f- uh, focus groups and so on but you can also pose open-ended questions on surveys and uh, one of the surveys that we did we did a qualitative analysis and it was over well over 300 participants our end was like I think 356 something like that so that this idea that qualitative is a sample size of two, meh, I'm going to say no. And in fact, later on, I'm going to argue for increasing your sample size when and where it's appropriate. Quantitative use of surveys, that's typically how we think about it. But I just told you, we can use data from open-ended questions on a survey. And in fact, some of the best survey construction has both. And, oh, by the way, I'm just going to go back there for a sec. I will also add something else. When we talk about interviewing in a few weeks, assuming we listen to these in any kind of order, um, I will say, I will talk about using interview uh, checklists, which allows me to very quickly code demographic and other data that is quantitative. E- even though it's in the context of an interview, And most of what I'm going to do is going to be qualitative analysis. So, again... We can get really creative with our methods and therefore get more out of them. Um, I like this sort of, uh, I stole this from somewhere on the internet. I wish I could remember where I got it from so I could uh, cite this person, Bad Laura. Um, Literally, the difference between qualitative and quantitative is in qualitative, we typically describe the qualities of something versus trying to quantify something. So this, this is, you know, talking about buzz. um, a frequent quant perspective on the differences. And this is where we often see this quant versus qual stuff come out and, and, and it works in the reverse too. If I could find a slide for all the qualitative, uh, misunderstandings about quantitative research, then that'd be fantastic. So a quant versus qualitative research, qualitative is to discover ideas and it's used Uh, primarily in exploratory research with general research um, topics, whereas quantitative is very specific research questions and hypothesis testing. That's actually also not true. I've seen some pretty good quantitative research that is exploratory. And guess what? They've used research questions rather than hypothesis testing, but they still did a statistical analysis. So again, this is another myth that we're going to explode. In qualitative research, uh, we observe and interpret. Whereas in quantitative, we we measure and test. There's a little bit of validity to that, but again, I I would say that um, you know, empirical research is observational research. You are observing. You observe something. You abstract from that. Whether you're not, you're framing it as a test or a measure. It's still an observation. Data is, is a collection of observations, if you will. And of course you still have to interpret. So again, I think this distinction is a false distinction. Uh, There's a typo on this slide. Qualitative research is unstructured and flexible versus quantitative being structured and standardized. Also not true, especially when it comes to doing things like systematic social observation, which I just realized I should add to my, I gotta make sure we cover this later on because I think this is a really cool research methodology. But, um, that is, uh, that can be done in a qualitative form and that is highly structured. We can do interviews. I just told you about checklists. That's a very structured interview. It can't, you can have some flexibility, but you still want to make sure you ask all the questions on your, on your checklist, a qualitative. Here's another supposed distinction. Researcher highly involved and in the results are subjective versus quantitative researcher uninvolved results are objective. I think this could be an entire like three hour rant on why this is like a false dichotomy. The reality is every human being, regardless of our, oh, how neutral we think we are. We carry with us our individual biases, our individual experiences, which shape our, our biases and shape, you know, um, I ate, um, you know, say I, I don't like, I, I had a bad experience with spicy food. Now I, I'm biased thinking spicy food. I mean, it doesn't make sense. There might be some spicy food out there that I would totally love. And as it happens, there there's many, uh, but you know, people can unwittingly or otherwise get caught in, in all sorts of cognitive and other traps. That's again, that could be a whole other, I think that should be quite frankly a graduate level course cognitive traps um, we have them and as much as we like to try to be neutral and get out of those traps we we have to recognize them and one of the things that we do in qualitative is we talk about uh, issues around positionality as an example this will come up over and over if we were actually face to face one of the, the things that I, I do with my students is i get you to start thinking about who you are and what your strengths and limitations are in terms of different types of research and your strengths and limitations are oftentimes reflective of your your position your status in life um, and which is also going to shape your experiences which is going to shape the places that you can work in the places that you can't work or the uh or the types of research questions you might be comfortable with and the types of research questions you might not be comfortable with I think there's a real need for critical self-reflection and I think that need uh, should be engaged in, that need should be exercised. I don't know what how I'm trying to think of this here. You need to do it. You need to engage in critical self-reflection whether you are a, quant, a self-identify as quant, qual, or mixed methods. These things are actually important and they make for stronger, better research because you, you recognize the limitations and the biases that are inherent in any piece of research. Okay, qualitative, few cases and natural settings, again, I've sort of, in relation to sample size versus uh, quantitative, which is many cases and attaining generalizability, well, quite frankly, both those positions are not necessarily the case, I've talked about uh, large sample sizes, and in qualitative research and i've also seen quantitative research where the the study was i don't know why but it was definitely underpowered and it got published anyway so there you go it wasn't too generalizable um so again these are these are myths Um, And again, I've talked about exploratory, qualitative being largely descriptive and so on, versus uh, quantitative being descriptive and explanatory. Well, not all quantitative research is explanatory. Certainly exploratory quantitative work is not. So we've got to start to unpack some of these myths. And then when we do that, what we realize is that qualitative researchers who care about Methods and care about rigor and care about validity and care about making the best research possible to actually do something with it in the social world, those people have a lot in common with quantitative people who feel the same way. So, if nothing else, I'm hoping that by the end of this discussion, you're going to rethink some of your approaches to your colleagues on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. Let's talk about rigor. One of the arguments is frequently made about qualitative research. And I, I'll just tell you, I just got a, I was a co-author on a paper that just got rejected from a journal, a top criminology journal. Chewy, come. This is frequent distractions while I bribe the animals. Chewbacca, come. Spoil animal is completely ignoring me. Um, I got this paper, we got this paper rejected, and uh, you know, because the sample size was too small, that didn't. it didn't match the question. I mean, it was basically a quantitative critique of a qualitative paper. And yet, yeah, what was interesting was that the paper was actually, for a qualitative paper, it was very rigorously done. The sampling was spot on. We had reached what we call saturation. In interview data, saturation is the point in time at which um, Everybody starts to say the same thing over and over again and collecting new data is not going to generate uh, new, fresh observations or insights because you've maxed out on the topic. So we had reached our saturation point. This paper still got rejected. Here's the thing in quantitative or qualitative rigor should be based on a good theoretical base. Sometimes and I'm, uh, I'm not gonna lie, sometimes I'm guilty of this too. I think, um, I often think about the theory. I, I do grounded work, which means I, I um, abstract insights from the data and then I go searching for theories that s- explain the fact patterns that I see. Um, a lot of other people work the other way and we can talk about that in an upcoming discussion. Uh, a lot of people are, are driven by theory. And, um, but regardless, you need to have a good theoretical base to orient the interpretation of the results and in depending on, again, the nature of the work that you're doing, perhaps that will inform your data collection choices, um, your analysis approach and so on. We'll get into that when we talk about data approaches later. But regardless, you need a good theoretical base and you need a sound methodological device device, design. You have to have good, your methods have to match your your research questions. They have to be the best methods to answer these questions and you have to think carefully about things like your sample size, whether you're sampling the right population, are you missing some people, um, is your sample potentially biased, all those types of things paying careful attention to your choices adds carefulness and a degree of exactitude in your research and this is why if you've ever read a very very good piece of qualitative research it's a joy because there is a ton of detail in the write up of the methods section i'll tell you now as somebody who reviews a lot of journal articles it feels like a lot one of the first things I do is I go straight to the method section. If they can't articulate to me in a very clear, careful manner what they actually did and what the strengths and limitations are of what they did, the choices that they made, then I'm already going to be like, Ehh. So when you are writing up your method section, if you are a quant or a qual, please pay attention to all these little details. Uh, things like, just why, why did you pick 50 interviews instead of 100? Um, how did you construct your sampling frame? Like How did you decide that you were going to reach out to these community groups? Why these group, community groups and who did you leave off? Did you look at all community groups? Did you decide to take a subset of those groups? These are the types of things that we're interested in knowing. <clears throat> Sorry, talking too much, need more coffee, hang on. Love my caffeine. Okay, here's a scientific principle: validity, and this is an important one for qualitative researchers, just like quantitative. Validity is when research measure researchers measure, evaluate, or observe what they set out to measure, evaluate, or observe. If I'm doing field research on, um, I oh well, here you go. This is something I've done. If I've done, if I'm doing field research on. Uh, vict- homeless women's access to health care after they've been victimized. And I'm out in you know uh, I'm out in the community and I'm you know at clinics, I'm at shelters, I'm in spaces, you know, just uh, collecting observations of, uh, and documenting people's experiences. That's valid research. That's what I set out to do. That's what I did. So there's, of course, there's internal and external validity. Internal validity is the degree to which changes observed in a study are not the result of other factors. That is a very quantitative way of putting it. As a qualitative researcher, I would say it's the degree to which observations made reflect um, the actual conditions that are being observed. So if I go in and I'm like, I come out with some totally you know, I go in to do a study on X and then I'm documenting why it's, there's no internal validity there. Or if I, you know, I don't know, I drank too much coffee and it screwed up my brain chemistry and I came with a bunch of observations that don't make sense. Well, that's not reflective of the realities on the ground. So internal validity is very important for us as qualitative researchers. External validity is more important for quantitative researchers, That's the extent to which uh, observations or findings are generalizable to a larger population. We don't generally talk about, when we do qualitative research, we tend to focus on the local, because that's where most qualitative research lives. We don't try to make grand claims, typically. That said, you can do it, but you better have a big sample size you better have a ton of other data to draw upon. And I'll tell you how to do that shortly. Uh, I don't think we'll talk about spurious correlation. Uh, I don't think we'll talk about stone monkeys. I don't think we'll talk about that, that. Okay. Let's talk about how, in terms of rigor and in terms of like how we assess qualitative and quantitative research, In quantitative research, and if you take evidence-based policy with me, you'll see these charts again, so you might as well just take note of them now. In quantitative research, and I don't think I have the scale here, no I don't, the scale uh, is called the Maryland Scientific Methods Scale, and it is very similar to this scale that I put up here, the source of which is uh, Jerry Ratcliffe's Reducing Crime. This is an evidence hierarchy for policy decision making. And I use this one instead of the Maryland scientific method scale, because it gives a little bit more detail about what these different zeros, ones, twos, and so on mean. Whereas, you know, unless you're up on randomized control trials, you might not, or meta analysis, you might not necessarily like the Maryland scale is a little bit more complex if you're just being introduced to it. Okay. So in quantitative research, there is generally a hierarchy and at the top sit randomized control trials, experiments in which uh, the treatment and the control is randomized. So your chances are, you know, of going in one group or the other are completely random. And if it's a really good, you know, obviously it's very difficult in social science research to do double blind experiments where neither the experimenter nor the participants know what's going on. So we don't typically do those. The only thing that's t- held as being higher than a randomized control trial in quant is a meta-analysis, which of course is a pooling, or I'm saying of course, like you guys, I, I'm not sure what, how I haven't taken quant in a long time. So I'm not sure what y'all got in undergrad, but I'm assuming that nothing much has changed in 20, 30 years, and you did not do meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is when you take all studies of a, a quantitative studies of a particular on a particular topic and type, and you pool the results to see whether or not across all those studies there were any significant effects. So that's Basically, Ratcliffe says here it's the total totality of evidence from numerous rigorous studies and a meta-analysis gives us a higher degree of confidence around whether or not something is um, proven or not, well, I hate to use that term proven, whether it's um, whether it works, I guess might be another way to put it. And down at the bottom, by the way, expert opinion, anecdotes and case studies. So, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. I don't care what anybody says. Now, there's been different approaches in qualitative towards this question of rigor and how we can determine whether or not a study is rigorous. One is this checklist called 4Q, uh, which is a 32-item checklist that was created by Steve Tong and colleagues. Don't chewy. eat. So we they, he's like a six pound guard Rottweiler. Like seriously, my Morky thinks he's a Rotty. Okay. So if you have the time and patience to do that, I don't, but if you do, but if you do want to do a very good thorough analysis of whether or not uh, a study is rigorous, this is a set of questions that, that Tong and colleagues have provided in terms of questions you might ask around sampling, the method of approach, the sample size, and so on. So again, this is the core cue. This is what I came up with, uh, and I came up with it in it to be a mirror of Jerry Ratcliffe's uh, take on quantitative research in the policy domain. I created this In terms of qualitative research in the policy domain, because let's be honest, um, I'm interested in influencing public policy, and policymakers and practitioners don't want to read a 32, uh, they don't want to answer a 32 question checklist. In fact, I I highly doubt any of you do either. So what we have is pretty similar. We've got uh, zeros and ones for things like expert opinion, case studies, and so on. Um, And then at the top, instead of meta-analysis, we have systematic review, which of course is like a systematic approach to surveying all of the qualitative literature on a topic. Guess what? I'm going to teach you how to do that. And you're going to love me for it. It's the opposite of the traditional uh, literature review, which of course we cherry pick. Now, instead of having saying that goal, like there's a gold standard methodology or qualitative, like the randomized control trial. Oh, my dog just fell. Off. Are you okay? Lucy, are you okay? She just she fell asleep and she just fell off the back of the sofa. Come here, Poppy. Come on. Come on, Lucy. Oh, are you okay, poo Come here. Okay. Oh. Okay, Lu- Lucy's now joining us for the remainder of the podcast, so she's poor poppy. Okay, <laughs> oh. so instead of, uh, because again, we go back to this idea that a research method has to, you know, it doesn't, there's no particular research method qualitative that necessarily gives you better results than something else. It's based on what it is that you're trying to accomplish, the research questions that you posed. So what I've suggested is that instead of saying, you know, in terms of looking at a study and saying, oh, this, this had interviews instead of focus groups, that's terrible. I'm saying that the more methods that you combine in a study, probably the higher degree, we could say the higher degree um, of rigor within it, because you've used multiple data sources, multiple types of analysis. And so, you know, we can have a higher degree of confidence, I believe, in, what, in your approach. Now, some qualitative people hated this, you know, because Twitter is not a nice place all the time. And I put this up on Twitter and there were qualitative people in the UK that just hated this because they hated the idea of any kind of scaling of of research methods. Like, sniff, sniff, we don't do that. Well, that's great. You don't need to do that. But I still need a way to communicate to policymakers the you know, what, like, um that taking an expert opinion and basing your your new law on that is probably not a great idea. So the terms that I've used here, mixed methods, studies, triangulated. Triangulated means three studies using, or sorry, it's not three studies. Um, Three different methods or three different data sources. Quadrangulated, try that at your next cocktail party. Uh, Four uh, or more different methods or data sources. going here. I don't know what I got going here, but anyway, that looks really boring. So I'm just going to skip it. Uh, I'm going to skip all this too. I'm going to skip all that. I think I have banged on and on enough about those types of issues, especially cause they're going to keep coming up over and over throughout this term. Now, what I want to do is go back to where I started, which was this idea of sort of expanding your mind in terms of thinking about what you can do with qualitative. And here's something I want to challenge people to consider that you can actually do experimental qualitative research. It's not done very often. In fact, it needs to be done much more often. Uh, You know, typically when we talk about experimental research, we talk about things like the randomized control trial or or or. you know, in quantitative uh, pre-test, post-test. So you, you you measure at baseline, you put an intervention in place and then you test afterwards and if your numbers went up or down or sideways, that's your result. We actually in the social sciences have had a fantastic history of experimental research, but it fell out of favor Probably because of, I would argue, ethics reasons and also because experimental research is hard. It's difficult. In in, a, in the context of publish Parish, you know, it, it can be a lot of work setting up an experiment. And research ethics boards oftentimes don't like the idea of researchers directly intervening in somebody's situation, social situation or otherwise. Um, And so they tend to be very cautious about it. So when we talk about experiment, we're talking about a scientific procedure undertaken to make a discovery, to test a hypothesis or to demonstrate a known fact. And what I like about this definition is there's nothing other than test a hypothesis. The rest of this can be equally applied to qualitative research. Um, this is what I was talking about when I say in quant, we, the typical, uh, experiment we see is the pre-test post-test. Here's your baseline. So you collect your stats at baseline, you implement some new policy procedure practice, and then you, and then you look to see what happens to your numbers afterwards. Here's our randomized control trial. Uh, and (laughs) it was going too well. Chewy. Chewy, come. Oh, apparently Chewy's awake now. I'm almost through this lecture. If we can get through this lecture without Chewy losing it, it'll be a good thing. Here's our randomized control trial. Here's our, And this is very typical in medicine. Uh, becoming more common in criminology. Not so much in SOCH as far as I know. Though I'm open to hearing about these. If anybody knows, let, send me an email. Let me know. Uh, where you've got a treatment group and a control group, then you follow up and then you compare the results. And if uh, you notice a difference with your treatment group and not your control group, then you know that your treatment has achieved whatever its objective is. Here is a classic example of an experiment in qualitative research, uh, Zimbardo-Stanford prison experiment, which was mixed, but mainly qualitative, mainly based on observations. Now, remember when I said about research ethics? Well, this was a very, this, this was a, uh, this was a classic example of a study that would never in a million years pass research ethics today because you cannot torture students. And also to some extent, some of the torture was faked. So in other words, um, some of the, we found out recently that some of the observational data, some of the data was faked and some of the, some of the people were actively engaged in fake behavior. So, yeah, it's really too bad, but it's studies like this that caused a lot of qualitative researchers to move away from doing experiments. Here's an experiment that would never get done today, but man, it's a classic of social psychology. This is the robber's cave experiment by Sharif. Um, Basically, what Sharif was interested in, and this was, of course, a mixed methods um, study, and say, of course, because it's up on the overhead. Basically, what we know is, this is about in-groups and out-groups and how we create our own in-group. And so by gathering around identities and around this group sort of dynamic, and um, so what they did was they took kids and went to a summer camp and they one camp was the Rattlers and the other camp was the Eagles. And basically what they did was they got these kids to do banners, to do competitive activities and to, to build up this sort of uh, this group, intergroup dynamic in which one team came, became pitted against the other team. They might have been friends before they got there, but once you were a rattler versus an equal, it did not matter. And this, this is an interesting social psychology experiment because we see this over and over again in any type of social situation in which there's typically in-groups and out-groups that form and they form for a variety of different reasons, but they can have very negative, uh, they can have very positive consequences with social bonding and support and so on. And they can have very negative consequences. As you can see in this banner here, Tom Hale, Eagles, you may win, but we will give you a hell of a fight. That's their motto. So, you know, again, this, is a, this was an important experiment in the day, it it reaffirmed a lot of what we knew in so social psychology, but the psychology of hatred, if you will, or the psychology of, well, that was part of it. But also, I mean, a lot of this research that came out, particularly in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, came out of trying to understand what had happened, uh, in, it, what had happened in Nazi Germany, and how people who, and and we see this dynamic over and over again. So for example, if you look at what happened in the former Yugoslavia, it was the same sort of dynamic. People who had known each other for decades could, were sort of mobilized against each other through the use of symbols and music and propaganda and all this, and and, and As a consequence, you know, there was a genocide that occurred. And if I've been to Bosnia and you see scar-pocked buildings, like you see where the... I, I was in Mostar where there's a graveyard where all the dates are like 1994 and they're all young men. And so, again, qualitative experimentation can provide really important social insights into various processes and dynamics we need to we need to like get a grip on unfortunately as i've said this is this is really um this has kind of gone the way of the dodo we don't do so much experimentation anymore and on that note you are done thanks for tuning in